I've been assigned the topic of life, liberty, and the pursuit, dot, dot, dot. I did get a little bit of clarity on that, but I think this may be a lesson to some degree in free will, as I've been given some free will on this. But uh, I want to take most of my thoughts, and I won't take up too much of your time, because I know that I am what stands between you and dinner. And I don't take that responsibility lightly. But we will be looking a little bit at Titus chapter 3. As we kind of consider in an election year here, maybe what is the Christian mentality as we consider politics and the government and the church? For some of you, the idea of politics invokes a lot of passion. For some of you, it uh, couldn't be less interesting. I've changed my intensity on this subject somewhat over the years, although I don't know if I'm necessarily landed exactly where the Lord needs me yet. Uh, many elections ago, I was very, very passionate about one certain candidate, so much so that I took a half a day off work. I went to a gas station. That particular candidate happened to be on the cover of Time Magazine that week, so I bought my copy. Was holding a rally in Kansas City that particular day, got my Sharpie, got on the front row, stood there for four hours. Got to shake their hand, got a signature of my Time Magazine of that person. Thought everything was so great because I felt such a passion and a devotion to that candidate for, we'll just blame it on youth or whatever you want to blame it on. But I know come this November, there's going to be some anxiety with some people and there's going to be some indifference with others about who our next president is. Whoever it may be, they're not going to be perfect. And whoever it may be, we'll probably all have issues with them on some degree. But I don't think it impacts at all the responsibility that we have to the Lord, and I certainly don't think it impacts the responsibility that the church has. And there are a lot of passages that I could go to in the book of Acts and some of Christ's teachings and so forth to address that, but for the sake of time, I'm going to take most of my thoughts from Titus, the third chapter, and the first eight verses there. Not because these are the best passages, but as again, you know, I'd rather just pick one and focus a little bit on it than to, you know, Try and do a myriad of a bunch of things. But as we kind of zoom back a little bit and take a look at the, at the New Testament and those churches, those churches were isolated, what I would call, for, for lack of a better term, in a sea of paganism. These were congregations and churches that did not have a culture that in any way, shape, or form had any sort of Christian influence or Christian um, backbone, I guess, maybe for lack of a better way of putting that. That's something that we've enjoyed in this country, at least for the last 200 years. And I think we probably could agree, at least in large part, that that is rapidly disintegrating. And when I say that we've had that as kind of a pillar for our country for the last 200 years, by no means do I mean that a majority of Americans were faithful Christians or that a majority of the people that lived in this country since its inception some 240 years ago are going to be in heaven. But we did seem to have as a framework of our law and our society some biblical concepts that I think helped greatly benefit this country economically, socially, and so forth. Well, it certainly seems like every generation always talks about how their generation's done more to tear that down than any other, but I think we're quickly seeing our country become, if it's not fully secular, rapidly on its way to obtaining that position. And I think that saddens a lot of us, perhaps, and then I think we start to sometimes maybe get a little bit angry about that. 
And I don't know that those are bad emotions or misplaced emotions, but I think when we look at all of the people over the last 2,000 years who have served the Lord, they found themselves in cultures largely that had no understanding or acknowledgement of their faith whatsoever. So I think what we may be finding here in America, and I'm not saying this is we shouldn't be prayerful about it because clearly 1 Timothy chapter 2 talks about that, but we may be seeing America slide into a, a position that a majority of faithful Christians over the last 2,000 years, excuse me, have been in, and it may be upon us to adapt a little bit to that. And when I say adapt to that a little bit, I think of the passage in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Can anybody quote that for me? I'll quote it for you. <laughs> for our citizenship is not of this earth, but it is in heaven. And I think for a lot of previous generations, previous centuries, Christians, I think that probably maybe meant more than it's meant to us living in the United States. Because I think here in the United States, we've been so blessed, and this is not an anti-American lesson, but we've been so blessed in so many ways that I think we've taken a lot of ownership of our country. We've taken a lot of satisfaction in the fact that we, we are a citizen of this country, and for good reason. You know, we should be obedient and we should be thankful for the blessing that we've been received. But I think sometimes maybe that's caused us to misplace our allegiance there a little bit as, as a church as a whole here in this country, that some people living in other parts of, of the world or in other times in history would have had no misgivings about uh, where their citizenship was because they would have held on to that verse with every single ounce of being that they have. That's where they would have derived so much of their hope and so much of their purpose. The media seems to always be a target of conservatives or Christians, the non-Christian media. Is that our enemy? Are we supposed to be attacking the systems of government that we don't agree with? Are we supposed to be attacking the human institutions and try and force them through intimidation or some sort of political avenue to do the things that we morally find in the passages of the Bible? I took this off the website of, of a politician running this year who deems himself a evangelical for you to determine the definition of that as you see fit. But this is, how, this is what he said on his website. It says, to sound the alarm, to instill the vision, to establish the leadership that will enable us to reclaim the heart of our culture. My question to you is, is that our agenda and is that even what we're all about? I hate to say that sometimes maybe we've politicized our faith, but I do think when we get obsessed, or maybe obsessed is a little extreme, but when we become overly concerned with the politics in our country, I think personally that this can start to blur our priorities, and I think this can begin to weaken our loyalties. Our priority is to preach the gospel, and our loyalty is to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Our primary citizenship is on heaven, in heaven, excuse me, not here on this earth. And though most Christians aren't going to deny this truth, I've heard it said from brethren, many statements that seem to kind of wrap their citizenship up in the red, white, and the blue. This notion that somehow America needs to be a Christian America or else the church isn't going to succeed or thrive, I believe is a false reliance that we would do ourselves a favor if we would just dismiss sooner rather than later. I believe we've 
and I say this largely across the country, not necessarily to anybody in this room, but I believe we've done ourselves some disservice with the emphasis of the gospel and the biblical identity of the church by maybe having some blurred loyalties and some blurred priorities. So much so that when somebody asks what is a Christian in this country, there are so many layers and so many misunderstandings about what that even means. But I think we can do ourselves a great service if we just reject a lot of the confused loyalties to government, to politics, to things that can cause us to feel good because we all want to live in a free country. We all want to live in a country where our rulers share the same beliefs that we have. But I think we need to understand which kingdom it is that we serve. And changing the morals and the culture and the social behavior of the United States of America is not why God's put us here. A lot of times people will ask me, and I assume they're going to ask you, and I know Randy's going to talk more about this tomorrow, about evangelism, but people will ask you, where do you go to church? It's a question you probably hear quite a bit. Depending upon how well you know that person may impact how you answer that question, but a lot of times people are going to say something to the effect of, I go to the Church of Christ. Sometimes if you don't think that's going to mean anything to somebody or you're afraid that may give a an initial bad impression, maybe sometimes we'll refer to ourselves as we're a non-denominational congregation and then we elaborate that as time permits. I just wondered, and I haven't tried this yet, but I was wondering as I was putting some final thoughts together this week, if we just told people we went to a church that preaches the gospel, what kind of a response that might elicit from people? Probably not be the answer they expected, but I do wonder if that might get us a step closer to the conversation we really truly want to have with people, which is, what is their relationship with Jesus Christ, if at all? Not so much preoccupied with how often do you take up a collection, what time does your service start, do you have class for the kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Titus chapter 3, the first eight verses, and we'll go through this not quickly, but we certainly won't belabor these points because I don't think they need to be belabored. The book of Titus in chapter 1, he's establishing leadership in the congregation and the church internally there. The second chapter of the book of Titus, he's talking about some internal harmonies between the congregation itself, talking about the relationships between the older men and the younger men, the older women, the younger women, and so forth. And then we'll begin that third chapter with that first verse. It says, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Smacks us right there on the face and gives us a call throughout all centuries of how Christians are to relate to their government, whether they like it or not. There's nothing in here that says, if you like your government, do this. It's not a flow chart. If you don't like your government, follow these instructions. If you do like your government, follow these instructions, et cetera, et cetera. It says we're to bow down and obey. We are basically to be anxious to pursue every good deed we can within our society. Now, I obviously want to put the caveat that I hope we all understand that our allegiance to obeying the government is only to the extent that it does not require us to violate anything that we find in the Bible. But being upset about our tax rates is not a violation of anything we're called to do here in the Bible. So a lot of the things that I think we have grievances about may be justified from a, from a societal level, but they're not reasons to disobey in the eyes of the Lord. As we work our way down, especially on this third verse here in, in chapter 3, it says, For we 
Also, once we're foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. God's desire as we go through these first eight verses here in this third chapter is for mankind to be saved. And our lives are really the platform for which salvation is proclaimed to the, to the world. I referenced it a moment ago, but in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there's that famous passage in there that says you are to be under the king and that you're to live a peaceable and godly life. And as that passage continues, the question as to why is answered. And the why is because God desires all men to be saved. What makes the gospel believable is not Christians who fight, Christians who protest, Christians who politicize, Christians who are obsessed with what they deem to be an unfair media portrayal. What makes Christianity attractive to people is when they are covered in the righteousness of Christ and they manifest his attributes in their life. So when we consider the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of, it's the pursuit of wearing Christ and it's the pursuit of proclaiming the gospel to the lost. It's not a pursuit of who is occupying the White House or representing our state capitol or anything of that nature. That third verse there talks about seven traits that people before they find the Lord possessed. And we should be mindful and considerate, I think, to the extent that we understand that Paul was once one of those people and so were we. Paul himself refers to himself in the scriptures as a blasphemer, among other things, before the Lord brought him to the correct side there in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts. And when we look out into the world, it's definitely getting darker and darker, but we've also got more access to more information that I think can infuriate us quicker than in times past. And I don't know that access to all that information is always a blessing. But when you look at Agenda X, whatever that may be, that Get your blood above a safe level. <laughs> it can sometimes cause us to become a little hostile. But we've got to stop and realize why these people are doing these things. If you look at verse 3, Paul writing there says, You once were foolish. These people are just completely ignorant. And it's exactly what he's talking about in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18. When he writes there and he says basically the same thing, that the Gentiles are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their hearts. This, what we see going on in America today, is unbelievers acting like unbelievers. So if anybody is taken aback by that, I'm not, I'm not sure why. It's unbelievers acting like unbelievers. This is just depravity manifesting itself. And sometimes I think maybe we can be hopeful enough to think that intelligent people by societal standards will look at the moral guidelines that the Lord has laid out for us in his word and just come to the realization that even apart from a faith in a higher being, from a pragmatic standpoint that this is the better way to live your life, but that's never going to happen because that's just not the way the mind of man works. Looking for higher education, looking for government, looking for universities to be the solutions or answers to anything was debunked by Paul in 1 Corinthians 
um, chapter one, many, many years and centuries ago. We're starting to see what America looks like without any real thread of Christian values woven throughout its political system. That constraint has been in place for a long time, and I think it's been a joy and a benefit to a lot of you who have lived even longer than I have in this country. But it's about to leave, and I think we are on the path to living the type of depravity that we saw in pagan Greek culture. I know a lot of people feel like America may be restored if it turns to God and so forth, and I will never say that that can't happen. It certainly can, but I think waiting for that to happen and focusing our energy on that to happen and not focusing our energy on what we see here in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, when it's talking about salvation, how Paul was saved, how all of us were saved, is really missing the mark on the allotted time that we have here in this country. Do we really care what or if America exists 100 years from now? We're not going to be here. I'm not going to be here. You guys may be here. I won't be here 100 years from now. But what I do from today till my last day, I want to try, as I think Steve alluded to, bring as many people on the boat as I possibly can. You know, Kevin was talking about, you know, yielding to God's will and not their will. These are the things that I think we should be pursuing above and beyond all else. And who our government officials are, while we all have strong opinions or mild opinions, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't let that deviate us off the course of what I think we've been truly called to do. The end of this third verse here in chapter 3 refers to people as being hateful and hating one another. What kind of societal system do you think people outside of God's will, people who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, are going to come up with? They're blind to God and they're blind to spiritual reality. John 3.16 was probably the second memory verse I ever learned right after Genesis 1 and 1. And was it John 11.35, Jesus wept? 35 or 34, I always forget which one that is. For God so loved the world. And I think most of the children here could probably quote that. When we put ourselves as best we possibly can in God's position, as he looks down on mankind and he looks down on us, even those who are giving our lives and yielding to him, as Kevin pointed out, trying to obey him as best as we possibly can, how disappointed he still is with us day after day after day for so many things. We think about Jesus going up on the hill there and weeping for the city of Jerusalem as he saw the people being disobedient to the Lord. I think instead of being so hostile and angry towards people that, trust me, it's very easy to get hostile and angry towards. If we try to put ourselves in the position of how does God view these people? God views these people as lost souls. God views these people of a depraved mind. God views these people as, what more can you really expect from these people outside of the will of the Lord? And we are the vessels that he's called to, to share that message with them. And if those people are going to have any hope of spending eternity in heaven, it's incumbent upon us to dispense that to them and to maybe not view them so much as an enemy, but just view them as an opportunity. The Lord is going to appoint leaders of this nation and all nations as he sees fit. Romans 13, I think, is pretty clear about that. We certainly have our preferences of who we think might be the best fit, but a lot of times, to kind of piggyback on some of the thoughts that Craig had, 
Parents know what's best for their children. And although we might think we know who the best government officials are for us and for our families and for the church, maybe we don't know. I'm certain that we don't, but maybe the Lord has a plan that while it may seem dark and it may seem completely contrary to all things that the Word of God says, maybe in some way that we don't fully understand is the best thing that could happen to the church in the United States. I don't know. I say all these things to just bring us back to Titus 3 and other passages. Our responsibility is to proclaim the Word of God to the people that are lost. And whoever sits in the positions of government, it's our responsibility to be obedient to them. And to me, that's where it ends. Um, and I've not always been that uh, hands-off on it, trust me, uh, as my opening story illustrated. But uh, it brings, it just, it reduces my stress and it brings a lot more focus to what's important to me by not obsessing with these things and worrying about these things. For the sake of time, I'll go ahead and wind this up a little bit. But I want to read the eighth verse of this third chapter of Titus. It says there, I'm reading out of the New American Standard Version. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Do we speak confidently? I think sometimes as we see the world getting darker and darker around us, I think maybe our confidence becomes less and less and less because there's maybe fewer and fewer of us, and it's certainly going to get harder and harder. And when I say harder and harder, I don't mean it's going to be harder and harder to know what to say, but you're going to be persecuted more for standing up and saying the things that need to be said. But he, com he commissions us to do that here in this eighth verse, and he says, those who have believed God... I've read that verse many, many times, but as I was reading it over a little bit more closely this week, those who have believed God, not, not believe in God or believe in a God, but believe God. And I take that to mean those people who read the words of the Lord and believe them to be true. There's always a, there's always a recent poll, how many Americans believe in God? And it's always some insane number, and I don't know where all those people live, because they don't seem to live around me, but it's always 80, 90% of America believes in God, and I'm, okay, they, they don't live in Jackson County, but <clears throat> do they really believe God in the sense that they believe his promises, they believe the words that he says on these pages to be true? It's clearly not 80, 90%, because people's behavior would be completely conditioned in a different way if people really believe that these things are going to come to pass. But as we conclude this last part of this eighth verse, the last sentence, I think, is really maybe what we should pursue. Back to the title of the lesson that I've been given. Those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. I was going to boil this down to a kindergarten version. <laughs> Let your light so shine. It's basically what he's saying right here. It's an increasingly pagan nation that we live in. I don't think there's much that we can do about it on a macro level. We can certainly be influential on a micro level. But I think trying to jump on a political bandwagon to change the culture is a fool's errand, in my opinion. When the church comes together, we're to come together and we're to speak the truth boldly. We're to encourage one another to live holy lives. 
We are to search the word of God because those who take the word of God seriously are going to encourage others to engage in these good deeds that Paul writes about here in this eighth verse. It's going to be good and profitable for a watching world to see the church engaged in these things. And that, brothers and sisters, I believe is our mandate. Right there in that eighth verse. We can't just be sad. We certainly have no biblical grounds to be hostile in any way, shape, or form. We do have a responsibility to pray for our nation and the leaders of that nation, regardless of who they may be. But I think sometimes on a personal level, we may pity them a little bit, love them the way that Jesus loved those who were outside of his will, and show them Christ's saving power in our lives. If we really want to make a difference, that's where it's made. People who always want to legislate morality, I always just think about how well prohibition worked. That, that didn't seem to work well at all, did it? And yet there's still this obsession with legislating morality. I'd rather save some souls along the way. The church doesn't need to become more like the world. It needs to become more distinct. It needs to become more different. And it needs to become more distinct. It needs to become more different, not so that we can be smug. Not so that we can look our nose down at other people as being unique and peculiar, as the New Testament says, but so that people can actually see that Christ manifesting himself in the life of a believer actually does work, it actually does change people, and it actually is the way to live and have that peace that passes understanding. We can't fix everything. We probably can't fix that many things. It's hard enough for us to fix ourselves. But we can be what God wants us to be here in Lawrence and in Lee Summit and whatever community you've come from. And God's will and his grace has allowed us the opportunity to demonstrate love and mercy to other people, to bring people into the Lord, to share the gospel message with them. And nobody occupying the White House, Capitol Hill, or any other place can prohibit us from doing that nor should we be relying upon who is serving in politics to empower us to do that. I can go to heaven no matter who my leader is. <clears throat> I can save my neighbor no matter who my leader is. And I think we just need to keep those things in mind. <clears throat> I don't say all that because I want to see this nation go down fast. I don't say all that because I'm not going to vote in November and don't have a preference. I just say all of that because it's not that big of a deal relative to the passages that we just looked at in Titus chapter 3 and other places in the New Testament. I appreciate your attention. I know you guys have been sitting for a long time, so at this point in time, we will offer the gospel invitation. Randy is going to lead us in number 633 in the red. If you'd like to begin that walk with Jesus Christ or there's something that the congregation can do for you here, please make that known as we stand and sing.